Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anaesthesia, and it's where we talk all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I am chatting with Yannicka Mellon Olsen, who is amazing. She was president of the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists, otherwise known as the WFSA, from 2018 to 2020. We talk about her career, her thoughts on leadership, and I hope you stay tuned to find out what happened on the last day of her presidency. All right, let's get into it. Thank you so much for giving up some time today. I'm actually truly honoured to be spending this time chatting with you. I wanted to start with asking, what's involved with being the WFSA president? You are in charge of the daily running of the board and also the main contact with the secretariat. It might sound like a cliche or whatever, but you are supposed to be the director with an orchestra and trying to make everybody play together and do their things. And then I also feel that you have an obligation for strategic thinking and ensure that the strategic work is going on. And then, of course, you have all the representation and all of that. You are this flagship in a way, the face, outwards face, and so on. Where's the secretariat based for the WFSA? It's based in London, so which means that we are physically at a distance. As I'm in Europe, it's not that far, but we have long experience in this remote running and discussion and so on. And a special challenge with the WFSA, of course, that it represents hundreds of thousands of anesthesiologists in 150 countries. And that means that the board is also spread all over time zones. So it's harder to to get them to work and meet, at least physically. Who are the big organizations that you represent anesthetists or anesthesiologists to? We are for the national societies. I'm trying to listen to them and we want to improve the situation for patients. But to improve the situation for patients, you have to take care of anesthesiologists, our professional things, and also scientific. And then we work with the WHO, with the politicians, with other specialties, with other healthcare professions like nurses, for instance. It's the whole spectrum of healthcare from patients to politicians. Is that the same with you? It's the same with me, but obviously you're, the, you're playing on the global stage. Yes, but I think probably it's just different levels in a way. The, the work is, <laughs> is hard enough. That's true. So you were president from 2018 to 2020? Yes, because they have the, now for the last five years the system that the president change mid-term. So all the other board members or officers are elected for four years, while the president, president elect for two years, and then they swap in the middle. I see. So you would have seen the emergence of COVID during your presidency. Yes, that's true. That's true. Like you? Yeah, yeah pretty much, yes. And so how, how did that affect your work and affect the work of the WFSA? Well, of course, as I said, much of what we are doing is meetings and representing at local meetings and with local anesthesiologists. And that was, of course, cancelled straight away. Then we had all the educational uh, activities, which we do in countries, in 
places where we have had uh, courses and we had uh, programs where we had people coming from one country to another country to stay for three to 12 months to learn uh, anesthesia more in, in depth. So that had to be changed. Then it was all the meetings were also put online. But of course, a main issue was the World Congress, which was supposed to take place in September last year. And all the organizational changes we had to make in order to to do the elections, to do all of that and to try to see what are we doing with the next Congress. Yes, and I think it's going to be online this year in September again, isn't it? I think I'm speaking. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, I mean, it will be as good as it gets at this time of this world. Uh, I think there's an opportunity because people who otherwise would not have been able to travel can still now be able to attend the meeting. But I'm getting square eyes now. We spend too much time at the screen and to be together, interact with people. Nothing can be the same as that. There are good and bad. I must say it's sad for the WFSA that we cannot meet, but I feel the most for those Czech colleagues who were organizing locally. And they have planned to to show us their culture, their country, and make it a very nice meeting in all ways. And now they are stuck with making a virtual congress, which could have been made from anywhere in a way. Mm, Exactly. We'll see. I wish them luck. It's an interesting transition to make. I think many organizations are having to make it or have made it recently. Hopefully you'll be there. Hopefully I'll see more of you there. We'll see. Yeah, I will. But uh, it's the new board who has taken over now. Do you stay on as past president on the board? That's the change now that uh, Gonzalo from Uruguay, Gonzalo Barreiro, He was a past president for two years. But uh, when you are the second in line after uh, a congress, then it's just cut, finished. How is that with you? What do you do? Yeah, so we have our term is two years. Then we stay on the board as the immediate past president. Like the Americans, like they do in the ESA. I think that's a better system. Retention of corporate knowledge, I think, is really good. Exactly. It's just more natural to grow into the role and then be it and then grow out. <laughs> exactly. Because there is a lot of growth in the role too, isn't there? Exactly. Is. Personal growth. And, yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I want to come back to that. But before I do, I wanted to ask, what was your impression of some of the big issues facing anesthesiologists globally during the pandemic? I think there are two. One is workforce and the second is PPE and resources. And now what we see in India and in many other countries is lack of oxygen. And that's the most, I think. But you remember some years ago when the WFSA made the workforce study, which we are repeating now. But uh, when we thought from the Lancet Commission that there should be a minimum of 20 surgeons, obstetricians and anesthesiologists per 100,000 people, and we thought how many of those should be anesthesiologists, physicians, and we thought, okay, at the bare minimum, it should be five out of those 20 in order to, to move the movement forward and to train and do some clinical work. But then when we made those calculations, we found that in order to reach this bare minimum today globally, you will need 136,000 new physician anesthesiologists worldwide today. I mean, just forget it. The number is so huge. 
So that's uh, a major thing. And then, of course, uh, so training and many of the anesthesiologists who are not experts in intensive care. In my country, we do both. So when I'm on call, I'm in charge of the anesthetic department and the ICU. But we mm. work with nurses, which is different from the way you are doing it. Yeah. But we are leading the team, so we work in the, the flexible team. But many places, uh, anesthesiologists have been put into uncomfortable situations, having to do intensive care, which they have not been trained to do originally. And then comes the danger of, or the, the problem that when they don't have protective equipment and risk their own lives. And then again, then the workload is, amazing and what they see and when they cannot help the patients this risk of being burned out and these things are also been tough for so many. Do you think there'll be many who will choose to leave the profession? Well they have done some service on that. I can't remember the exact numbers but there were big numbers in the US for instance who decided we have had it. Wow I completely understand. Yes, it's it's hard and, and uh, yet this has hit many of us. So I see in my setting, which is just my setting, the, uh, those who deal with infectious diseases, they have also had a big toll and the nurses who had to stay with the patients all the time uh, and losing them and then comes another. They can't give the, the nursing care they want to do and the, their relatives who cannot see their loved ones and so on and so forth. It's heartbreaking. Mm, a lot of moral injury going around. True. Has there been much COVID in Norway? No, we have been uh, relatively fortunate or clever or whatever you should say. So we are one of the countries that have, have dealt the best with it. We cannot close our borders as strict as you and New Zealand have done. But the borders are literally closed now. And if you come in, you have to do quarantine in hotels and so and so that prevents people from going we have been good at testing and all those things you have to do so we have been relatively spared but we have a lack of ICU beds here as in many other countries. I'm relieved to hear that things are going reasonably well. Well I say okay people are getting fed up they can't travel they cannot meet people because we have those social restrictions and so on but I mean, we we are allowed to go out in the forest, in the nature. There are no bombs falling on our heads while we are suffering with COVID. We have food on the table. Okay, I have not seen my husband since January because he lives in Finland and the border is closed. I don't know when I will see him again. But I mean, we should just try to look a little bit on another level on how fortunate we are after all. Although I'm not, I'm not minimizing the, the pain of those losing their jobs and businesses and so on. So, But uh, there is a colleague in my department. She has just been running uh, intensive care units, first in Brazil and then in Yemen for Doctors Without Borders alone. And what she has seen and experienced, I mean, you feel so ashamed on behalf of your countrymen when you hear their complaints. Because to have COVID pandemic in, in a war zone, for instance, with so little resources, young people dying, pregnant people who are about to give birth and so on, they just, uh, it's... Heartbreaking. Yeah, wow. How is Norway going with the vaccine rollout? Well, we are not doing too well, but not too bad. 
So I'm fortunate I have been vaccinated. But again, we live in countries. And I, I think that's one of the good things about being involved in the WFSA is that you get perspectives on your own situation. These roles are great because you do get that. You get people coming and giving you feedback all the time and you really get a good snapshot of where people are. And then this happens to your friends. For instance, two weeks ago or some, there was a hospital in India where all the oxygen exploded. And of course, then you have a friend who's in charge there. It gets closer in that sense. And that's, that's one of the big, big good things about being involved in the WFSA is that you see that basically we are colleagues and being colleagues, we get a, a direct shortcut to being close to people no matter country, religion or race or whatever. So you just become friends and you see that basically we are all the same. We want the same for our children. We need food, water, shelter, love, security, of course. And uh, that's what matters. So I think I think there would be less wars in this world if people traveled more and befriended more people. You don't want to put bombs in your friends' heads. That's so true. There's something, you know, when I hear about oxygen shortages and oxygen blowing up, there's something so central. Oxygen is is essential for life, but it's also very essential for what we do. I do want to go back because you did talk about the journey of coming into your role and then the development also that occurs during the role and then afterwards. I wanted to come back to how you got into leadership. And I remember when we first discussed this a few years ago, you shared with me a story from when you were three and a half years old. (laughs) It's funny you are mentioning this today because this is today, 60 years today since uh, my brother was born. Oh, wow. So that's, uh, that's interesting because I had a brother who was born when I was three and a half years. So now you can directly calculate my age. But he was born with esophagus atresia and some other malformations. And uh, my mother knew that if she was not with him in the hospital, he would not survive. And I told my mother, okay, you go and look after Turgrim in the hospital and I will take care of my sister who was two at the time. And she had no choice. So you can imagine if you look at uh, at three and a half years old, you won't understand that anyone could look after their two-year-old sister. But my mother knew I could and I could. So she was there with him and I looked after my sister. And then six months later, he suffered. There was a medical error that uh, happened and uh, he died even though Uh, She was with him because he was operated and uh, there was a surgeon who had said, do not remove his tube in the ventricle, the gastric ventricle. So they removed it, put it back into the peritoneal cavity and he was fed through that tube and then he died. So after that, my childhood was over because I, I stopped playing. And then, and this was my mother's bad consciousness. But I knew she was a desperate mother. She knew, did what she had to do. Nobody else wanted to help her. And sometimes mothers have to make those choices. But then after that, I decided I want to do something in this world, make it a better place. I want to become a nurse. And then my mother said, yes, but you can be a doctor. And I said, no, I'm a girl. I cannot be a doctor. Girls become nurses. 
And then she said, well, down the road, there is a, a, a female doctor. She was a psychiatrist, this doctor. And I, yes, that's true. And from then on, I wanted to become a doctor and to make a change in this world. And that has been what I have done. And uh, I must just add that this thing about what happened to me and my lost childhood, in a way, it was not lost, but in that. I have played when I got older and I have more money to play with. So I, I am playing. And this experience with my family has helped me a lot to, to understand what other families are going through uh, when there are patients or relatives in the hospital and so on. So I think it has added a dimension in my life. Of course, I spoke to my mother this morning about today and uh, she said, and I agreed that how bad it was, there are some good aspects that are coming out. Of course, if you would have chosen, you would have chosen that he lived. But this is how things in our lives affect the rest of our lives for all of us. Wow, I can't. I'm a bit speechless. That's just an <laughs> incredible story. And I, I just see um, it's giving me shivers down my, like we say our hair is standing on the back of our neck, just knowing that it was your brother's birthday today, 60th <laughs> birthday, no less. That's a very, very significant birthday. And just incredible that, that that's 60 years ago. And look at the incredible impact that's had on your life. And then because of that, your incredible impact on the world of anesthesia and beyond. What an incredible legacy. Well, I'm not sure it's so incredible, but at least it has made me, um, yeah, it has affected my life and, and made my life what it is. Like our early experiences do the same for everybody. You mentioned there, especially stereotypes of women and becoming nurses yeah. and not becoming doctors. What are your thoughts on leadership and the challenge or the benefits of being a woman in a leadership role? <laughs> yeah, it's good. I think mostly it's easier for men because uh, most are men. It has been not that they are bad or whatever, but they are um, the majority and they they are used to being led by men and so on. And we have those role models, uh, no roles which we are supposed to, to fill. But I think there are good things about being a woman. And I have I have not felt it difficult to be a woman in my situations, but I think that's not the typical story. I think most of the time it is harder for females. And just to mention one thing about the, the previous president of the Surgical Society in this country, he said that females are better surgeons than men in general. But the problem about females is that they need to be pushed and encouraged because they are thinking, oh, I can't do it. I, I'm sure you have heard so many, no, I, I, I can't do it. And so and if we read a, an announcement for a new position, we read through all the prerequisites and we say, oh, no, I cannot do this one, so I cannot apply. But for men, they are more, okay, I'll give it a try. And so they need to be more held back in a way. That's what he said, and I think that's true. And then when they are, are, are interviewed and so on, they are interviewed by people like themselves and so on who recognize themselves. You feel more safe with people that are like yourself. And there are many aspects uh, of that. And uh, when I say that I don't feel that it has been difficult for me to be a woman, 
it does not mean that I have not been exposed to all those suppression techniques that we are aware of. Like you are being ignored, you are damned if you do, damned if you don't. Information is withheld from you and all of these things. You mentioned role models before. Yeah. And then I also know that you were very much in a minority as a woman in medical school. Women were a minority in anesthesia in Norway. You were the first anesthesiologist who also did military training as a woman. You're the first president of the European Board of Anesthesiology. You've you've been the first woman in many, many roles. Yeah. What was your pathway to becoming president of the WFSA? (laughs) If there wasn't that, and, and any of these roles, if there wasn't that role model before you? Well, it's interesting because I, I, as I told you, I wanted to change the world and make it a better place. And that has been my main motivation. It sounds a little bit too much, but this is how I have failed. And then when I was just out of medical school, I had all the time in the world to do that. And then I was asked to go to Lebanon for the military. And at that time I thought, okay, I can't do that because I'm a girl again, because the military is for men and there were no female physicians who had completed military services, which was voluntary for females at the time. But I asked them and they said, okay, we'll take a woman if there is no men applying. Okay. I thought this was something interesting to do in my days. And I just wrote and thought there would be plenty of men wanting this position. And then they called me a couple of days later and said, okay, you can go to Lebanon. Yes. Okay, fine. Yes. By the way, you have to do an officer's course. What officer's court? We have not spoken. Yeah, yeah, but it's simple. You you just do that. Okay, I'll do that. And then when I came, please sign here. And I said, sign here. It says here that I'm going to complete my military services. And this is one year. And we discussed six months. They said, don't worry. It will be okay. And so on. So please sign here. And then I signed. I went to Lebanon and I was asked to extend for another six months. And that was it. I had done my military services. And at that time, I was the only female officer in the battalion's leadership. It was an infantry battalion in the war zone in southern Lebanon uh, with the United Nations. But I felt at the time that they were very supportive of me as a female. I was a major before I was 30, which was unusual. But, But I think I was not competing with them for jobs because I had my expertise, which they needed, because you, you cannot survive without healthcare in the war zone. You need to have that. So I think that's part of it. So they helped me a lot. When I got home, I noticed that there were people having problems afterwards, like after they did after the World War II, the PTSD and things. It was not on the agenda in Norway at the time uh, that it could happen now. And it was not the most popular thing to mention because people thought this was from the World War II, we are over with that and so on. But then I went into the veterans organization and I became the vice president and there were only retired colonels and generals and me traveling the world talking about these things. And But then I was the odd person in a way. They supported me a lot. And then in medical school, we were one-fourth females. And when I started anesthesiology, for a long, long time, I was the only female 
in the department. And when I finished my training, I went to the hospital where I'm working now. Also, again, the only female. But I just love being with the men, in a way. Maybe because if you are only one, you are supported and you are helped. And there was a colleague who suggested I went into the National Society on the board. They have probably seen that I'm very engaged and active. So I went on to that board and then after a while I became the president. And that is how I was engaged in international organizations. As the president, you meet in the European Society, you meet in the World Federations and so on. And then it went from there. Yes, and then I was uh, in, in the European board. I was the national Norwegian representative. And I felt they were just meeting twice a year and they didn't do anything between meetings. So I started to complain. I mean, there's no use in us meeting twice a year just to have, have a, a nice party in a way and doing nothing between meetings. And then we were in a meeting in Rome and I was very busy at the time. But then the then president, he called me up on stage and said, there is one person in this room that complains that we are not doing enough. He gave me a bottle of Irish whiskey and then pronounced that I would share the Safety and Quality Committee on the European Board. And I was already <laughs> on the stage. I couldn't refuse. And then, and that's how I got involved in this quality and safety on the European level. And I chaired that group. And from then on, I became secretary and was encouraged to apply for presidency. Wow, that is one way to be. I heard someone say the other day, voluntapped on the shoulder. <laughs> it sounds like your drive to make the world a better place just couldn't be ignored by the other people around you. That's what <laughs> I hear. I'm not sure, but the, 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 there's one person who said that there's one person in this room who always have an opinion on something, whatever the topic <laughs> might be. And it's true. <laughs> It's also when it's quiet and nobody says anything. I feel somehow a responsibility to break that silence and to, to say something. What do you think have been some of the things that you've really impacted? Well, it's, it's hard to say because that's one of the frustrations of being president. And I'm sure you might feel the same because you had so many plans for what you want to do. And then when you are in that position, you are sidetracked all the time uh, with things that happen, emergencies that you had to take care of, and suddenly two years have passed in a way. I'm sure that you recognize that. I, I read that also in Obama's autobiography. That was his complaint. And I thought, okay, I recognize that. But I think what I did in Europe with the Helsinki Declaration on patient safety and anesthesiology has been very important. But otherwise, it's more like what we have done with all the team and the increased size of the secretariat, that they have been able to do more things about education, advocacy, not least, which is very important, the advocacy role in, in what we are doing. I think all of what we are doing on a smaller scale when we try to help other countries or colleagues in other countries, running small hospitals, small projects and so on. That's all well and fine, and not least on a symbolic level. But if we want to make real changes on a larger scope, then we need to have the politicians to take charge. So we can do how many nice small projects we want, but unless the country's own politicians and authorities do not take the lead or whatever, 
we will not succeed in what we want to do. Yeah. So that's something which I find very important. But otherwise, to make it the anesthesiology world a little friendlier, to see that wherever you are in the organization, you have the same things you are thinking about and you have the same challenges at work and uh, that we are in it together. And maybe the hierarchy, in some cultures it's important with hierarchy, but that we can listen to those who are lower down, so to speak, and we are all important. Yeah, such diversity on a global stage, but ultimately we're all people and we're all very similar. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you if I can, and you, you don't have to answer this question. It's been great hearing about your inspiration and your motivations, how you got into the role, some of your accomplishments. I agree, the Helsinki Declaration during your time. But your last day as president, <laughs> can I ask <laughs> how you spent that? <laughs> well, I spent that being a patient on the operating, uh, uh, in the operating theatre, flap out and in the PACU unit. It was so nice because it was in the National Hospital of Norway and some of my former residents had put syringe labels and made a very nice chart to say, hey, Annika, and get well soon and so on. And they had pasted it or taped it to the operating lamp. So the last thing I saw before I fell asleep was this very nice, thing that my my former residents had made to to make me feel safe because they removed most of my pancreas and my spleen on my last day of president. Incredible, incredible. So that was back in 2020 and you look to me like you've made a fantastic recovery and you are going about life with just as much energy and strength as before. We will see, I mean, because some people know this, some people don't know it, that I was diagnosed with a metastatic pancreatic cancer more than two years ago. And so I had to go, while I was the president, I had to undergo chemo uh, and immune therapy for one and a half years of that time. And my goal was to keep the presidency going until the end. Uh, but then Unexpected for everybody. Nobody thought I would make it that far. But the tumor was reduced in size and the metastases uh, were also reduced in size. So in September, early September last year, I discussed with the oncologist and I said more for fun that I'm so fed up with this cancer now. Can't you just remove it? And he said, to my big surprise, yes, I have been thinking about the same because by then I had everyday nosebleeds for one and a half years. My kidneys were failing. I had nephrotic syndrome and some other problems. And it was far out of protocol because I was irrescuable from the beginning. So that's why they removed it. After that, they had some problems. I had a drain for several weeks as there was a chyle and amylase leak in my abdomen. But then it was back and I haven't had any treatment since the beginning of September. So this is a miracle so far. But mind you, I'm not taking anything as granted. Nobody has declared me free of cancer or anything. But you just have to enjoy every day. And now as spring is coming in my country, I feel so extremely fortunate to yet again see those flowers in bloom and uh, in blossom and so on. So it's, um, 
almost unreal because it was a uh, incidental finding this pancreatic cancer so far i'm just so happy to be able to talk to you today and then who knows what tomorrow will bring i'm so happy you're talking with me today too <laughs> but, uh, but you're doing more you're 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 back at clinical work you were meeting with who last week you just sound as busy as ever i'm not as busy as ever but i am I, I can tell you, I had to be first on call for some hours, some weeks ago. And I was so, ah, I'm first on call. And it was, yes, tomorrow I will be on call. And I went to, <laughs> around in the hospital corridors. <laughs> it's me. I am on call. And in the <laughs> evening when I got home, champagne to celebrate. It feels so good to be in the working environment see patients, help them, and also be close to colleagues and work in the teams. We don't appreciate how important it is until it's taken away from us, our mm, everyday. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of spring, I wanted to ask you just my final question. I love receiving emails from you, and I wish everyone listening to this podcast would at some stage receive an email from you because you always have a beautiful picture of flowers, and they all seem to be different. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about those flowers. No, I'm very fond of flowers, and uh, I change the pictures at the end of my emails according to the season in my setting. So you will get them in a different time of the year. But it's just to brighten up others' days and my days. And also I decided when I got to know about my disease that from now until the rest of my life there shall always be fresh flowers on my table. Beautiful. What do you think would be your favourite flower? It would be either red poppies or sunflowers. Can I squeeze in one more question? I just wanted to ask any women out there who are thinking of taking a path in anesthesia, in leadership, what advice would you give them? Don't be shy. Don't be shy and don't hide your ambitions or don't uh, try to suppress them. Believe in yourself because that's one of the things when I went to Lebanon the first time and I thought like most females would do oh, I can't do that, I'm not qualified and so on. But if others can with the same background as you have, you can. So just believe in yourself. And then, of course, finding role models, mentors, support each other and, and follow your dreams. It's a little cliche to say that. And another little cliche-like thing is that you don't regret what you have done, but you might regret what you have not done. Give it a try. That's true. A lot of people have learnt the term now, imposter syndrome. Don't listen to that voice. Listen to the other one. Exactly. <laughs> oh, there are so many things I would have asked you about too. You know. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll turn the microphones around, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I start making my own podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. That'd be great. <laughs> I'd love to listen to that. Oh, well, look, Yannicka, it's been wonderful. Just wonderful having this time chatting with you. Oh, thank you. Just truly inspirational and i can't wait to see you and hug you thank you thank you well i hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as i did truly an inspirational person to chat with you might have heard us mention the world congress of anesthesiologists meeting so that 
was originally scheduled to occur in Prague last year and we're all very sad that we couldn't make it, but of course we all understand why. The meeting has gone fully virtual. It's now moved to September the 1st to the 5th of 2021. As I mentioned, Janneke is hoping to be there. I am hoping to be there as well. I will be speaking in one of the sessions. You're welcome to come and listen. And I will put a link to their website in the episode notes. Till then, I hope you're traveling well. I hope you're getting to some virtual meetings and getting very used to it. I know I certainly am. And of course, hope you stay safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the free music archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>